you know, through the body and blood of Christ this morning in, in our church family and also with, with churches all around the world um, today. So um, as I said, we're, Matthew so beautifully wrapped up our series last week on um, the Sermon on the Mount. And this morning, Johnny's going to be um, starting off a new series that we're, we're going to be starting in over the next few weeks. So um, Johnny, we, Johnny Rankin, if you haven't met him before, he is just a real top top guy and we're so lucky that um that you're willing to to kick this message off for us today um i will take you off mute here and we will cross live to you i believe in your study yes <laughs> i believe in jesus but i believe you are in your <laughs> study. Um, and so i will out of the creeds yeah <laughs> um <laughs> Let me pray for you and then we'll we'll give it to you to take away. So, Lord, thank you so much for your presence here with us. Um, Thank you that you've been speaking to us even already just in, and as we, today, as we, we, we gather together as a church family, as, as followers of you, Jesus, we, we lean into you. We receive your presence. We, we look to you and we listen for you this morning. We listen for what, what you're saying to us and, and your invitation of, you know, how, how it is that you want to um, be moving in our lives today. And, and Holy Spirit, as we listen now um, to your, you know, to, to God's word, we, we ask that you would open our hearts to, to receive it. And we, you know, we, we listen and we look for truth. And um, we, we ask that you would fill Johnny now as he speaks Holy Spirit, that you'd fill him afresh, and we ask that you'd fill all of us, that we would have the grace to to receive um, from you this morning, and to to lean into you, to respond to you this morning, to your love. Amen. Amen. Thanks so much, Johnny. Thanks, Gemma. Good morning, everyone. Really nice to see everyone on the screen. I must say that. Uh, I live next to some chronic DIYers, so they've just started their chainsaw, um, and <laughs> so there may be a little bit of interference, which I do apologize for, but it's uh, the chorus of the suburbs. Um, yeah, lovely to, lovely to be with you all, um, and to be kicking off a new series. This one is on the theology of the kingdom of God. And Mark Burroughs produced some beautiful slides for us. Uh, Unfortunately, I have had some technical difficulties, as you do, but I just want to share you this slide anyway, just to show you how beautiful that is. He's done a marvelous job. So hopefully, um, hopefully when Matthew and Lloyd talk, they'll be able to... um, they'll be able to present a much more snazzy presentation without the chainsaw in the background. But for now, a little teaser. Our series is is called Breakthrough, and it's about the theology of the kingdom of God. So back to to, um, my notes. (laughs) Yes, so the next, it's a three-week sermon series that we're doing, and Matthew and Lloyd and I are each going to take a different angle on the theology of the kingdom of God in terms of what it is and in terms of how it intersects with our world and and <clears throat> maybe how we can live in anticipation of the kingdom of God. 
And at face value, this this focus on the kingdom of God might seem strangely familiar or strangely similar to the last sermon series that we just did, which was kingdom life in a broken world. And you may be asking yourself, why are we still going on about the kingdom of God? Haven't we already covered this? Well, yes and no, we have, but we we kind of unapologetically live in this live in this theology of the kingdom because we think it helps us to understand everything. And I just want to point out a couple of differences between this sermon series and the sermon series that we just finished. So our last sermon series was was really anchored in the teachings of Jesus but as understood and distilled by the apostle Matthew in his gospel. And the really great thing about teaching from one book of the Bible is that you get to hear us from a single author and you get to hear them recalling and telling at, at great length what they heard God say. Whereas, um, and, and you know, we're quite fortunate to have four gospels. We're, we have four different writers and I like think of them a little bit, I think of them a little bit like siblings sitting around a family, a family dinner table and the way siblings sitting around a family dinner table who might be recalling the events of their shared childhood years, each sibling is going to tell the story slightly differently. And each sibling is going to draw out different angles and different memories and different perspectives that are unique to them. So it, it goes, it goes without saying that that is really what scripture is all about. And that's and our theology of the kingdoms come comes through the Bible but we've been living in Matthew. So now we're effectively, we're zooming out a little bit to to look at the kingdom of God from a big scriptural point of view to hopefully round out our, our, our understanding of what the kingdom is and how it works and what its nature is. So, and like I said, this is important to understand because it's it's the central theme that holds the Bible together. And it's also the foundation on which we're invited to build our entire lives. So if we don't understand the story of who we are in light of God and of light, and in light of what he's done, we're much more likely to begin to believe and to begin to live into other people's stories. Someone else's story that isn't our story. So the story of God is the story of the kingdom and it's also an invitation to live into that story. This week, I'm going to be looking at just one Old Testament picture to give us a sense of how the kingdom of God breaks through at the nation scale, which I think seems quite pertinent to us at the moment we're in right now as a nation. Next week, Matthew's going to look at some New Testament texts that show how the kingdom of God broke through in the life of Jesus in the early church. And in the following week, Lloyd is going to talk about how we experience the kingdom of God breaking through in our lives today. <clears throat> and in some ways, I kind of wish we were doing this all in reverse, because sometimes it feels like delving into the Old Testament feels uh, like entering into this archaic world that doesn't seem to, initially at least, doesn't seem to have a whole lot in common with our daily cares and concerns. But um, I'm hopeful that by exploring this this ancient story of the kingdom breaking through, we might be able to probe a little deeper into some of those fundamental questions that shape our worldview, like who am I? What's really wrong with the world? What's the solution? Where am I in the story? And where is this whole story going? 
because these kinds of questions, these worldview questions are already present to us, but they're not often present to us in a conscious way. In fact, I think the reason we're not often consciously awake to the big, these big questions of life is that we are actively encouraged not to think about them. Perhaps the blossoming of so many conspiracy theories online is actually a reflection of the fact that we're a society built on these kind of fabricated myths about these big worldview questions such as who we are, where we're going, what's wrong and what the solution is. Because to sincerely ask those kinds of 3 a.m. questions requires a, a critical engagement with the, the dominant consciousness around us. And I, I know I'm really sounding like a conspiracy theorist now, but uh, this kind of critique of the dominant um, consciousness of our culture is what we'll see uh, part of the Old Testament prophetic tradition. And as we know by, us, by any study of the prophets, the prophets and their critiques are almost always interpreted as a threat to the stability of those who write the big narratives in our society. So this prophetic uh, invitation in the Old Testament is an invitation to go deep into these kinds of questions. Sarah and I have been watching some really great films lately, um, and most for some reason we've just keep picking up these films that are set in the post-World War II era of the French, the French cinema. And many of them tend to be stories about life under Nazi occupation. And I think it's because, you know, so many of these filmmakers lived through the war and went on to tell their own stories uh, through their films of this kind of banal brutality that they witnessed at that time of history. But one thing that's really struck me in all of these films is the way that so many of the characters seem to find themselves caught in this struggle to develop a kind of normalcy in the midst of these totally abnormal circumstances. And, you know, so they're trying to like find stability in the middle of this, this crazy time. And the result of their attempts to sort of try to carry on with life as if there isn't a war going on, as if this isn't complete, as if, as if normal is impossible, um, is that they often find themselves, uh, these, these otherwise decent people find themselves thrown into these ethical dilemmas and they're completely unprepared to know how to make a good decision. And these little decisions often lead to life and death in these circumstances. The, the theology of the kingdom of God brings us into touch with the fact that we are also living in occupied territory. We are invited to join something like an underground resistance. I think of, of Christianity like that, and increasingly so, it's helping me to think of Christianity as an invitation to, to join into an underground resistance to the oppressive consciousness that's occupying our world, to live our lives as double agents, uh, living in the occupied territory while at the same time working for the force that is yet to come. And we know what our job is when we, you know, a good, a good double agent has to know, has to be very careful with the way they live their life and they have to know what their job is and they have to do it with bravery and with diligence and with care or else they can blunder, blunder something and, and it can create chaos. Um, they can end up collaborating with the occupied 
iron forces. And as, as Paul said to the Ephesians, your struggle is not against enemies of flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So Paul understood the Christian life in a very similar sense, that we are living in a state of a clash of kingdoms. These spiritual forces of darkness are still at work in our society, and they are working to destroy God's creation, and they're working to neutralize us as agents of his kingdom, to make us ineffective people. According to Old Testament scholar Walter Brueggemann, the aim of the rulers of every age is to enculturate people into accepting the unchangeable nature of the present order of things so as to remove our power to believe or act. He suggests we become enculturated to the ways of the world as we lose track of our identity within our faith tradition, or in other words, as we forget who we are in God's story. And speaking directly to our context, Brueggemann writes, our consumer culture is organized against history. There's a depreciation of memory and a ridicule of hope, which means everything must be held in the now, either an urgent now or an eternal now. He goes on to say that the role of the prophetic community, like the church, is twofold. Its first job is to criticize the dominant consciousness in order to dismantle it. And its second job is to energize persons and communities to live in anticipation of the renewal that God has promised. So to criticize and to energize. And when we preach the kingdom of God, this is what we do. We both criticize, delegitimize, dismantle the present ordering of things. And we energize each other toward the promises of God's future. Scripture, the whole, the whole witness of scripture offers us a window into what it looks like when the kingdom of God breaks through into the static order and creates something new. And the book of Exodus in particular tells the story of the dismantling of a great Egyptian empire through the intervention of the kingdom of God. The ministry of Moses represents this radical break with the social, political, and economic reality of Pharaoh's Egypt. And it happens through those two things, a criticism and an energizing. So at the beginning of the narrative in the Exodus story, we find the Egyptians that are at the height of their power and the Hebrew people are living in slavery. And Pharaoh and his foremen are ruling over these people ruthlessly controlling every element of their lives from the way they reproduce to their worship, to their work. And this is shown in this little verse where Moses and Aaron come before Pharaoh to, to ask the Hebrew people, ask that the Hebrew people would be allowed to take a break from work to worship Yahweh. And Pharaoh responds with this brutality saying, they are lazy. That's why they're crying out. Let us go and sacrifice to our God. Let heavier work be laid upon the men that they may labor at it and pay no regard to lying words. 
So the taskmasters and foremen of the people went out and said to the people, thus says Pharaoh. And in this phrase, thus says Pharaoh, uh, the writer sets up this cosmic clash between Yahweh and the Egyptian regime. And this clash of the kingdoms plays out at first through a kind of spiritual battle with each plague representing the death of one of the members of the Egyptian pantheon of gods. So they were not just, uh, the plagues were not just impressive wonders or cool tricks. They were, they were actually a fulfillment of, of God's promise to bring judgment on the gods of Egypt. And once the spiritual powers behind Pharaoh's army, uh, behind Pharaoh was disarmed, Yahweh then, you know, went on to conquer the Egyptians militarily and as we know the story drowning them in the red sea which is kind of it's a great story it's a story for all time i think um and it's worth retelling i think again and again for a number of reasons but it's particularly worth worth retelling in the context of the kingdom of god because it reveals something about who god is it reveals something about the way god operates the story concludes in chapter 15 with this beautiful song of worship and thanksgiving. And this is the ultimate expression at the end of being liberated. These newly liberated slaves have this great big dance party singing out the name of their God over and over and over again. You see it if you read Exodus 15, just it just says Yahweh, 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 Yahweh throughout the whole thing because they're so excited. Um, and the song reaches its kind of crescendo in verse 18 with this line, the Lord will reign forever and ever. So this is, this is significant for a number of reasons, but it's significant because it's the first picture in the Old Testament narrative that, that really shows God being depicted as a king. And I want to I highlight five things that I've noticed in this story and which I think um, may be pertinent for us and which might help us to understand the kingdom of God a little better this morning. So the first thing that I've noticed in this story, and perhaps the most beautiful lesson that I've drawn from it for myself, is that in the kingdom, in the kingdom of God, when the kingdom of God breaks through, we, we realize and we understand that God sees and hears and remembers his people. In, in chapter 2, verse 23 to 25, it says, The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out, and their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. God heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. So God hears the groans and the cries of his people, and that is a, a remarkable thing in and of itself that God is present to those who are suffering and he's present to each of us. He hears, he hears us and he hears what's going on. Um, and we know, you know, even today, that many, many people are groaning and crying out in slavery. The, the United Nations estimates that tw about 21 million people are in slavery right now. Well, there's an NGO called the Global Slavery Index, and they put the number even higher at about 35 million people. 35 million people are in slavery today. And 25% of those 35 million people are forced into commercial sex services. And about 30% of those slaves are under 18. 
which is is shocking. And the global distribution of slavery also deserves our consideration, I think, because 67% approximately of slaves live in our Asia-Pacific region. So the majority of people today who are in slavery live in our region. That's 23.5 million people. And pandemics like the one that we're living through only exacerbates these existing inequalities which drive people into slavery. And you know, the, reason I, the reason I share these really disturbing and horrible statistics is simply to say that the, the Exodus story continues to be a live story. It, it continues to be deeply relevant to millions and millions of people today. Um, it has been a story that's been relevant to oppressed people since the beginning, since it happened. Um, many, many people identify themselves with this story because there's something in this story that tells an essential truth, that God is a God who liberates slaves. And God sees and hears and remembers the cries of his people. In the Old Testament, Israel Israel was a nation that was called out from, from all the other nations of the world to be God's unique people. But now we live in a world where the kingdom of God's been thrown open to Gentiles like, like us. So if we do take this story seriously, we should also know that God sees all of the injustice on the earth. He witnesses it. He hears the groans of his people. And when we pray your kingdom come, your will be done. What we are doing is we are inviting the breakthrough of the kingdom of God, just like we are inviting God to break through like he did in the Exodus event to release people from slavery, including and perhaps especially those who are literally living in slavery today. And when the kingdom of God breaks through like that, God, it shows that God has become directly involved in history. I love the way um, it puts it in Exodus chapter 12, verse 42. It says, Yahweh kept vigil that night to bring them out of Egypt. This is a beautiful image that, that God doesn't sleep. You know, once, once he's begun his work, God doesn't sleep. He keeps vigil until his people are safe. So that's the first, that's the first point that God sees, God hears. The second point is not only that he sees and remembers the cries of the oppressed, but he also adopts these people as his own. And there's this really cool like, line in, in chapter 11, verse 7, where God promises Moses. He says, among the Israelites, not a dog will bark at any person or animal. Then you will know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. So this, this small detail, kind of incidental, highlights the degree to which God goes to defend his people. The Egyptians had been oppressing these people for 400 years, will now no longer be able to even lay a finger on, on his people. Not even the Egyptian dogs will be allowed to bark at the Hebrew people or at the Hebrew people's animals. This is like a, a deep involvement in protecting his people. And it's kind of reminds me of David's psalm where he says, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies and my cup overflows. It's, it's when God steps into history and when the kingdom of God breaks through, 
God becomes right there involved in the smallest details. So the Exodus story reminds me that God sees and it reminds me that God, when God chooses, when God acts, he chooses his people and he protects them. The other thing it reminds me is that when God reveals himself, uh, he reveals his nature. So when God reveals himself to Moses in the desert, Moses asked him his name and this you know, this isn't just a kind of casual question that, that we might ask, um, like, is your name Bob or is it Paul or Sarah? Um, when, when Moses asks God his name, <clears throat> he's, asking, he's asking him, who are you in terms of who is your character? What is your character? And Derek, Derek Morphew writes about this. He says, um, the naming of a person in Hebrew thinking involved more than the mere act of selecting a name. A name encapsulated the character of a person. For Moses to ask, what is your name? Was therefore to ask, what is your nature or character? When Moses asked this question, God said to him, I am who I am. Which is a great answer. Uh, The Hebrew name for God in this text is YHWH, which is considered so holy in subsequent cultures that... um, that few people remit, like people don't know how to pronounce it anymore. Anyway, it, the, this this word, whatever its pronunciation, its meaning is much more significant, and it derives from this Hebrew Hebrew verb to be or I am, you know, to exist. Um, and it has this unique ability to refer to being in the past, present, or future. So, it can be translated: I was who I was. I am who I am, and I will be who I will be. So, and and Derek Morphew writes, further, if one examines how this verb is used in the Old Testament, one discovers that it often described the word of the Lord coming to a certain prophet. In each case, it carried the idea of becoming present. When the word of God came to prophets, it meant that what they said unleashed events. Their words were deeds or event words. One could say that the word carries the idea of being dynamically present or coming to be present. It signifies that God has entered the situation. He has invaded history. He's manifestly present. Um, So if one could put the whole field of meaning together of what what happens when, when, when God reveals his name to Moses, you could say what what God's response is. He says, I was, I am, I will be. From generation to generation, the becoming present one, coming down into the situation of humanity to deliver and transform from bondage to liberty. Now I want to um, come into landing this morning by addressing just a couple of, of niggling questions and that the Exodus story raises for me. And I don't necessarily have answers for these questions, but I think that we as the church have something to do with it. And the, the first, the first question, the first frustrating question, maybe it's the only frustrating question. And I'm sure it's a question many of us have asked is, why doesn't God just come and sort this all out right now? Like, 
he has the power why doesn't he just come and fix the world and we we believe and proclaim with the ancient hebrews that that god reigns now and forever yet there are so many still so many illegitimate powers running amok in the world today and and ruining things and to say it's frustrating is is to put it a little too glibly i think but to go back to that that picture of living life under nazi occupation i think there's this thing of like we 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 yearn for for the the day when they'll be defeated but instead it just seems like they continue to just hang around and cause trouble and then there's this interesting line in the exodus narrative right in the middle of one of the plague cycles where it says um, the lord said to moses get up early in the morning stand before pharaoh and tell him that this is what the lord the god of the hebrews says let my people go and then he says for by this time i could have stretched out my hand and struck you and your people with plague to wipe you off the earth but i have raised you up for this very purpose that i may display my power to you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth so god has this mysterious plan even in the in the process of the plagues you know god says to pharaoh that he's raised him up he's raised pharaoh up for the purpose that god might display his power and that his name might be proclaimed in the earth and it's i'm sorry like i said i don't have the answer for this question but i think it's one that sort of boils away in me but it's also one that a verse like this helps me to understand which i don't understand and which maybe none of us understand we don't understand the purposes of his actions and his timing and this yeah even though it doesn't necessarily satisfy that frustration i think what it does is it invites me and hopefully it, it invites us as a church to be people who who live in fervent anticipation of the kingdom breaking through um to be people who are yearning for the kingdom to be breaking through and the other thought and, and i think matthew and lloyd will focus more on this over the next couple of weeks is that is that jesus unleashed the kingdom of god in a very unexpected way which is which which unlike the exodus event is in a way that's centered on the life of the church rather than the nation state but i <clears throat> in saying this I think it's still important to remember that Jesus builds on this Exodus event in order to explain the kingdom rather than sort of canceling that way of God's operating in history. So I still think I still think we're called to seek and to pray for the breakthrough of the kingdom of God on these large canvases of life. Like when we really enter into that um pain and suffering of the 23 and a half odd million people many of whom are children in our backyard who are in slavery we we shouldn't sort of lull ourselves away from that from that discomfort by saying well you know god's going to sort it out i think we're actually invited to be people who who actively uh seek the kingdom to break in and actively seek his justice to be enacted and there's a really great illustration of this that i wanted to share which comes from uh 
1758, which is a shame because it's such a long time ago, but I, I thought it was, <laughs> it was a, a good example. This Quaker abolitionist named John Woolman pricked the conscience of his church over their involvement in the, in the institution of slavery. And Richard Foster tells the story. He says, um, where am I? As, as the Philadelphia yearly meeting gathered for its business meetings that year, the slavery issue was a major agenda item. A great deal was at stake, and the issue was hotly debated. John Wallman sat through the various sessions, silent, with head bowed, and tears in his eyes. Finally, after hours of agonizing prayer, he rose and spoke. And this is what he said. My mind is led to consider the purity of the divine being and the justice of his judgment. And herein, my soul is covered with awfulness. Many slaves on this continent are oppressed and their cries have entered into the ears of the Most High. It is not a time for delay. Should we now be sensible of what he requires of us and neglect to do our duty in firmness and constancy, God made by terrible things and righteous and righteousness answer us in this matter. And then it says the entire yearly meeting melted into a spirit of unity as a result of this compassionate witness. They responded as one voice to remove slavery from their midst. John Greenleaf Whittier stated that those sessions must ever be regarded as one of the most important religious convocations in the history of the Christian church. That united decision is particularly impressive when we realize that Quakers were the only body that asked slaveholders to reimburse their slaves for their time in bondage. It's also striking to realize that under the prompting of the spirit, Quakers had voluntarily done something that not one of the anti-slavery revolutionary leaders, George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, Patrick Henry, was willing to do. So influential had been that united decision of 1758 that by the time of the signing of the Declaration of Independence, Quakers had completely freed themselves from the institution of slavery. So there's a, I couldn't call it a modern example, but there's an example of, a, of I think, a synthesis of the church becoming involved in um, the kingdom work of, of kingdom breakthrough the Holy Spirit inspiring this, this Quaker and the spirit of unity being released in the church. And these, these Christians, um, well ahead of their time, well, well ahead of their time, the 1758 before the declaration of independence, um, releasing all their slaves and reimbursing them for all of the labor. It's quite incredible. So to sum up, we, we live in occupied territory. All of us live our lives in occupied territory. And the best thing we can do, the best possible thing we can do is to wake ourselves up to this fact by rooting ourselves in the stories of the kingdom of God. And these stories of the kingdom of God and the prophetic tradition of the Old and New Testament are organized against the static triumphalist and defeatist stories of our culture. We 
have faith that God's kingdom is breaking in even now at all levels of life. We affirm that God sees, God hears, God chooses his people and that God acts in history as the becoming present one and that God's activity is shrouded in mystery. Our task is to pray. And I think that's why Jesus gave us the Lord's Prayer and asked us to pray. Let your kingdom come. Let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So that's the first picture for the Sunday of the kingdom breaking through. And I encourage you to go and read, reread the Exodus story. It's probably very familiar to you, but you might be surprised at what jumps out at you. It's about, yeah, it's about 15 chapters. So it might take a little while. It might take you a couple of hours, but, um, but read it and read it with a fervent expectation that God would act in our lives and in the lives of those slaves all around the world today. Okay. I'm done now. So I'm going to, I'm going to pass it over to, to Lloyd. Who's going to,